Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about Turgeon of Mir by Jack Vance. This story was published in 1950. So this story is part of Vance's Dying Earth setting, which is uh, something that is massively important to Gene Wolfe and especially to his Book of the New Sun. And what we're doing here is a little unorthodox in that this story comes from the first book that Vance did for that setting, which is simply called The Dying Earth. And that book is marketed as a novel, but it is really just a collection of stories that Vance had been writing in this setting in the 1940s, but that he couldn't sell to to magazines. And and even some of the editions of this supposed novel have the chapters in different orders because it doesn't matter because they're not really chapters. They're distinct short stories, though there are some overlapping characters, as we'll see. But what we're going to do here on Elder Sign is treat this like a collection of related stories, and we're going to try to work our way through it as we build up to covering the Book of the New Sun over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. There are six of these stories, and I don't think that we'll actually make it through them all before we get to the Book of the New Sun, but it'll be fun to have a little series within the series here on Elder Sign. That is to say, at least if people keep voting for these stories, but they did vote for this story in droves. Almost every single Patreon supporter voted for this story. Yeah, and I'm going to just announce some of the other vote winners here at this point as well. The Blue Flame of Vengeance by Robert E. Howard is another winner. That is going to be our first Solomon Kane story, another of Robert E. Howard's kind of famous pulp heroes, along with Conan the Barbarian. We're going to be covering Houses Under the Sea by Caitlin R. Kiernan. We both loved the short story we covered by her. I'm really excited to kind of get into more of her fiction. We're going to do The Alchemist by H.P. Lovecraft. And then we're going to do a story called The Irish Kigal Working by Jonathan L. Howard. Yeah, this last story here was tied for fifth with the M.R. James story, The Rose Garden and the Patreon vote. But since Jonathan Howard had been nominated by a Patreon supporter, he won the tiebreaker over M.R. James. And so M.R. James has missed the show again by just one vote. This is like the fourth or fifth time this has happened to him. Uh, Robert Block and Robert Aikman also didn't make it. So all three of them are going to go back on the ballot for next time. And if you would like to have your say in what we cover here on the show, then support us on Patreon at the Archon level or above. Uh, At higher levels, you can also get to nominate a story or even have us do a special bonus episode on uh, the story or or topic of your choice. And of course, we're grateful for all of the support. It really keeps the lights on here, keeps the show going. And thinking about this story, Turgeon of Mir, this first Dying Earth story that we're going to cover, we are really going to be taking, I think, two different tacks as we look at this one. And and one of them, of course, is going to be thinking about the the Book of the New Sun. But the other is that, as we talked about in the commissioned episode that we did on role-playing games and weird fiction, this is a real important setting for Dungeons & Dragons as well. It's a real important setting for D&D. And so I think that also is something that we're going to keep our eye on as we go through this one, uh, but we should probably go through this one before we start to discuss it. And Brandon, it is your turn to do the recap. So let's do it. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the D&D stuff before I get into the recap here, because it's all over this story. So let's just keep that in mind. I'm going to be mentioning some stuff. And if you're a fan of Dungeons and Dragons and something in the recap jumps out at you and you like it, pick up Tales of Dying Earth by Jack Vance, which is a collection of four uh, Dying Earth novels. But Let's get to Turgeon of Mir here. Turgeon of Mir has a problem. 
the beings that he's growing in his vats aren't turning out so great. They turn out poorly and they die quickly. For instance, his latest experiment has a great big head on a small body and it has weak, roomy eyes and a flabby button of a nose. He tries to feed the thing, which is in a cage, but the thing refuses to eat food and it dies pretty quickly. You pretty much know if something is refusing to eat. It's in, it's in rough territory. And this is bad because Turgeon recognizes that this thing that he's made is his most successful project to date. So he's pretty frustrated. He doesn't know what more he could be doing to create a viable that person. So he climbs up onto the roof to ruminate and think. He climbs to the roof of his castle and he gazes out upon the dying red sun, which is setting beyond the horizon. He thinks about all of his past failures in life creation and the grotesque creatures he's made, which I gather are all women, by the way. And he thinks about his mentor, the sage, as well. On a night years before, he stood on this roof with the sage, and the sage spoke to him of the distant past of Earth. A thousand years ago, wizards and sorcerers had access to all of the spells that could affect their knowledge and wills. Now, only a few spells remain known. But there is one the sage told of who carries with him all of the knowledge of the past and past magic. His name is Pandalum, and he dwells in the land of Ambelion. Pandalum will give you what you seek, but he will ask something of you of equal weight to what you ask of him. No one knows where Ambelion is or how to get there, but fortunately, there's a spell, still known by some, the sage included, that will take you there. So the sage had given the spell to Turgeon years ago, and that's why Turgeon is remembering this night. And Turgeon decides to go down into a study and perform the spell to go to Embelion. Not knowing what kind of dangers might await him in Embelion during his search for Pandalum, Turgeon gears up at this point. He puts on his plot armor, so to speak. <laughs> he grabs his short blue cape, uh, a blade that fits neatly into his belt. He fits the amulet holding Lockadel's rune into his wrist guard. And then he picks out three spells that he can memorize. And this is because wizards in this universe can really only know four spells at a time because of how powerful they are to the mind. The fourth spell, of course, is the spell he's going to use to call the violent cloud, which will take him to Embelion. Uh, the other three spells, though, just for reference, are the Excellent Prismatic Spray, Fandal's Mantle of Stealth, and the Spell of the Slow Hour. Yeah, these names are great. Excellent Prismatic Spray is my favorite of these. I don't even really know what that is, but it's something I definitely need in my life. And yeah, here is where we can see the, the most important feature that ends up in D&D, this idea that you have to memorize your spells every day. You pick out the certain number of spells that you can have, the max number of spells you can have that day, and you memorize them out of your spell books. And then either you use them up, or even if you don't use them up, you've got to memorize new spells or memorize these same spells again the next day that is straight out of this system. And I actually don't know if Vance used this system in his Leoness uh, series of fantasy books. I've always only known of it as coming from here. And this is what's mentioned in Appendix N as well. But I would be interested to check that out and see if this is in some of Vance's other uh, fantasy materials 
also. There's more to the spells that are going on here as well that I think is really cool. Uh, these spells have a kind of material existence in this world. Uh, Vance writes of the spell book that the characters burned with an urgent power, pressing off the page as if frantic to leave the dark solitude of the book. And I, I love this, right? There's this idea here that the characters, the letters on the page of the spell books have a kind of persona, sort of personality or some kind of agency. Like they want to get chosen to be memorized, to be in Turgeon's head for the day and, and off the page. It's a really interesting feature. I, I don't know how much this is going to come back in the other stories, but it's really cool. Yeah, I really appreciate that as well. In reading this story, I was just blown away by the relationship between this mage wizard type character and and Dungeons and Dragons. And I I do like the idea of spells having agency that they want to be chosen. They want to be used. And we also have this sense that like so many spells are lost to time that there's a smaller number of spells that these people can use to level the playing field in a wizard battle or something like that. Uh, It gives us a sense of deep time, which I think we get in this section of the story as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to go back to the very opening of this story. I may think listeners by now know that I love the beginnings of stories more than anything else. I mean, what did we spend three hours on just the first page of uh, a psychical invasion uh, a few months ago? (laughs) But this opening to this story, I think is just awesome. Vance is a wonderful crafter of sentences. I think especially if we're comparing him to his contemporaries in the paperback SF field of the 50s and 60s. Uh, I'm thinking of writers like Philip K. Dick and, and Alfred Bestard here. I mean, among others. But I think Vance is a better wordsmith than almost any of them. And the first page of this story really demonstrates that. Uh, just the vocabulary alone is great. It serves to set a mood that is uncomfortable for us, the reader, precisely because our protagonist is so comfortable in the strangeness of this. It's it's really well done. And not just the, the strangeness of it, but the grotesqueness of it. I mean, this whole description of him attempting to grow people in vats and failing at it and being kind of casual with uh, the number of them that die and just shrugging that off. You know, well, he's doing something that we definitely can, uh, definitely have when we've talked about other stories, describe as playing God. And Vance really gives us a a juxtaposition here between comfort and discomfort that I think really serves us, the the audience, really quite well. But there is also the story level material here as well, not just the sentence level. And that is also great. Uh, We get really just the one hint here that we are in a dying earth setting at all. This comes when Turgeon thinks of the earth as old, uh, and we learn that the sun is red, though it's not clear, I think, at this point that the sun is red because it's, you know, a billion years in our future and not just because we're dealing with sunset, though we're going to get all of that, or at least some of that more explicitly later in in this story, and then, of course, in other stories, if we should continue on with these. But Vance, just in general, does an awesome job of setting the mood here, right? We have someone who lives in a castle in which there's a workroom where he's attempting to make living creatures. On this first page, we're not clear whether this is through science or magic, but in either case, he is something of a mad scientist who is creating far more death than life. And then, of course, we do on the next page discover that we're talking about wizards and not people who at least identify as scientists, though we may question what is really meant by being a wizard in this world. Exactly. And I think it's kind of a confused notion, not for Vance, the writer, but Vance wants to create that sense of 
uh, dissonance between science and magic or maybe even create a confluence on some level between the two and and keep the reader sort of on their back foot as they're trying to determine just how all of this works. There's clearly a magic system, but we're also growing people in vats, which requires some knowledge of the physical world of biology and things like that. And we'll get a reference to the ancient magic of mathematics a little <laughs> bit later on in this story. And Vance is doing a really good job, Glenn, I'm going to use your word here because I think it's perfect, of keeping the reader really uncomfortable by having Turgent so at home in this awful type of world and and the world's going to get a little bit worse i think as the story goes on yeah for sure but uh, but go on we must let's let's get deeper into this yes yeah, so turgeon calls the violent cloud and he does a little rhyme here that basically tells the cloud to take him to embelion the cloud takes him there and turgeon is now in a very strange place he sees that there are beautiful flowers everywhere and that kind of indicates to Turgeon that he may not even be on Earth. The environment is like Earth, but everything is more beautiful. It's more preserved. It's newer. It's fresher. And there are also slight differences between Embelion and Earth. You know, like the sky is described as a mesh of vast ripples and cross ripples. And these ripples reflect a thousand shafts of colored light that look like rainbow nets. So he's in some sort of weird protected environment. And as he's trying to get his bearings in this strange environment, he hears the sound of hoofbeats kind of coming on him quickly. And he sees a beautiful woman riding a black steed, and she is headed right for him. She wheels the horse around, and then she takes out her sword and tries to kill him. Turgeon dodges the blow and he gets out his own blade and they get into a fight with Turgeon besting this woman. At this point, he wants to know why she has attacked him. And she tells him that he's evil, like all existence. She wants to destroy life, the universe, and everything. Really. <laughs> and he asks her at this point, because he's still kind of holding her down, he's got her pinned down, where he can find Pandaloom. And she says she is not going to help him. Turgeon, of course, thinks that, you know, if she were a little bit nicer, she'd be really, really pretty. Uh, but she's so mean that I just can't find her that attractive. It's a pretty good thought to have, I guess, if you're in a fight with a woman. I'm not really sure. Uh, but Turgeon doubles down here and tells this woman that if she doesn't tell him where to find Pandaloom, he can find other uses for her. And this is a pretty good threat, I guess. And she seeds the fight. So she tells him that Pandaloom is actually just across the stream. That's only a few paces away. And she leaves the scene and Turgeon finds Pandaloom. Yeah, there's quite a bit about this scene here that's a, a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, he is euphemistically threatening sexual violence to her. I mean, she did attack him. He's defending himself. But this is a weird thing to put in a story, to have the hero of your story threaten sexual violence uh, to to somebody, and then for us to be expected to root for this person as we go. I mean, things have changed generationally, but I don't know quite that much. And I will say that this is something of a charge that is leveled at Vance. This is something that appears in a lot of Vance stories. I don't know Vance well enough to really speak to this broadly, and I think we, we might actually want to table any real discussion of this as a feature of Vance stories until we've done more Vance stories, but it's definitely something that was really jarring for me as I was reading this. 
Yeah, and, and something like this even comes up in the Thomas Covenant novels as well, which which I was reminded of sort of reading this, a person being whisked away to a new land and exerting their power in a, an extraordinarily unsavory way that makes us almost hate the hero of the story. One thing we might want to talk about is whether or not Turgeon is a hero in any in any sense or what this story is actually about because it's a little mystifying at times. But Turgeon making women in vats and needing to continue that experiment and kind of threatening this woman the way he does, he's he's a really difficult character to to like or even root for um and it's not even clear what we're supposed to be doing with him at this point in the story absolutely i think that's a fantastic point and one of the stories that i had in mind is simply the fact that i have just recently read and, and done an episode on the star king which is the the first book in the jack vance series called the demon princes which is basically kill bill in space it's a quentin tarantino film about someone who's a psychopathic assassin he's on a quest for vengeance about the murder of his own family but he's kind of awful in a lot of ways and it is really difficult to root for him and i think that this is generally speaking kind of characteristic of vance of having protagonists who aren't people that we would like who aren't people that we would think of as heroes but often the context doesn't signal that in the way that i, I don't know this is signaled to us about don draper or something right uh it, some of the context is not there it's not signaled to us in other ways you almost have to tease out wait hold on i'm not really supposed to like this person am i or am i it's a kind of a question and maybe we will take that up about turgeon in the discussion yes but uh let's continue on with the story here because we haven't even gotten to the plot yet (laughs) (laughs) so as we said turgeon has found pandaloom's home which he describes as like a a manse which is a dwelling for a priest uh connected to a church and and pandaloom stops turgeon at the door basically and tells him that nobody looks upon pandaloom so Turgeon has to close his eyes and navigate a little bit, and he goes into the center of the living room of the house, basically, while Pandaloom is hidden, and has a conversation with this unseen interlocutor. Turgeon tells Pandaloom why he has sought him out. Turgeon just can't make good people in his vats. They all die, and he wants Pandaloom to give him the right recipe for people making. Uh, and Pandaloom agrees, but he wants something of equal value in return. Pandaloom needs Tarjan to get an amulet from Prince Candive the Golden of Ascolaeus. By Tarjan's reaction here, we can assume that this is not going to be an easy task by any stretch of the imagination. And at this point, I'm thinking, hey, maybe this story is actually going to turn out into a high story. That would be really cool. Like, Maybe it's going to be about how it's a bad idea to make women in vats and the cost of perfecting that bit of wizardry is going to be costly indeed and maybe more trouble than it's worth. But we'll have to wait to find out whether or not that's the case. Turgeon, of course, agrees to this mission and he wants to ask one more question to Pandaloom, uh, providing that he doesn't have to find a way to, you know, move the moon back to Earth or re- recover an elixir that was spilled into the sea. I, you know, find this line actually pretty funny. Uh, and so does Pandaloom. So Pandaloom lets Turgeon ask his question. Naturally, Turgeon is curious about the violent woman who attacked him and rides her black horse around Embelion. And at this point of the story, Pandaloom comes clean. He has also been up to making some vat people and this woman is one of them her name is Tiseus 
he's made her with a kind of flaw or, you know, there's a kind of passive way that Pangeloom says this, which is she climbed from the vat with a warp in her brain and she sees all beauty as something ugly and things that are ugly are absolutely vile to her. And so the world is unbearable to her. She's filled with malevolence and violence. Yeah, there's a lot of making people in vats going on in this story. These people <laughs> need some better hobbies. Maybe maybe they could take up D&D. That's a good hobby. And uh, speaking of D&D, this has all the hallmarks of a D&D solo adventure, right? There's a, a real quest structure to this story. You want X and the NPC has X, but will only give it to you if you go on a quest first. And I have to say also, I love Pandalum's manner of speaking as well. He's, he's slightly cryptic and he seems to understand a lot more of this speculative world than Turgeon does. I, I actually think it's worth reading his monologue here just to get a sense of the, the mood of this story. He says, willingly will I aid you. There is, however, another aspect involved. The universe is methodized by symmetry and balance. In every aspect of existence is this equipose observed. Consequently, even in the trivial scope of our dealings, the equivalence must be maintained, thus and thus. I agree to assist you. In return, you perform a service of equal value for me. When you have completed this small work, I will instruct and guide you to your complete satisfaction. Uh, this is a great monologue. It's uh, it's fantastic. It is a lot of fun. I do like Pantaloom as a character, though, again... I'm not sure exactly what's going on in this story at this point, and I don't know what Pangeloom is meant to represent or what he's trying to be as a character in this story. Is he a wise one? What kind of wisdom is he displaying? What does Turgeon need to learn from him? Is this transactional? Is what we're going to see in a little bit during the high section of the story uh, a commentary about the whole world, that everything is really corrupt and the world is dying? There are a lot of questions here that I that I have about this story, uh, and, and Pangeloom is one of them, though. I do think he's a fun character. We're almost halfway through this story, actually, and we still maybe haven't gotten to the actual plot of it, right? So let's carry on. Let's go on the heist adventure, at least. Yes. Well, we've learned of Pantaloom's mistakes in, in making Tiseus, uh, and that's really all we're going to get of them. And, and it's interesting to have this kind of a wizened character admitting to a mistake, or at least passively admitting to one, saying something like, mistakes were made, um, even though he's the only person <laughs> in this environment. I do kind of like that bit of flaw that we get in this character. So, Turgeon, his favor for Pandalum is that he has to go to Cain to steal the amulet. Pandalum is going to open a portal for Turgeon, and he's also going to give him a crystal that when he crushes it, Turgeon is going to return to Pandalum's living room. So Turgeon crushes the crystal and returns to the living room here. So Turgeon closes his eyes for a moment so Pandalum can push him through the portal. And before he can open his eyes again, he hears a woman say, Look, see the man-owl who closes his eyes to the merriment. This is a description, I suppose, of Tarjan. It's a little bit baffling uh, why he's described as a man-owl. But Tarjan opens his eyes here and finds himself at the festival in Cain. And I don't know if this is to indicate that the time has passed here in any way or, or we're doing wonky stuff with time, uh, but it's it's a festival period. And he's also not too far from the palace of Kandiv the Golden. This festival is full of depictions of people who are shamelessly acting out 
their vices. And, and I think we're watching, we are witnessing the action of people who truly believe that the world is ending and there's no reason to act with a sense of morality or ethics or civility or anything like that towards one another anymore. Um, the, the fact that the things we witness here are described as merriment, I think is pretty telling uh, though. Again, Vance isn't really situating us within an ethics of this world. No, and, and we don't really know anything of the society here or the culture here. That's not really how Vance operates. That is something we're going to take up in our discussion. But what Vance is so good at, what he does so well, where he does spend his energy is in the visual imagination of what this setting would be like. And I actually just want to read this paragraph, the first paragraph that we get of uh, of Turgeon kind of landing in Cayenne, because I do think it's it's, again, quite a beautiful description here. It was night in white-walled Cayenne and festival time. Orange lanterns floated in the air, moving as the breeze took them. From the balconies dangled flower chains and cages of blue fireflies. The streets surged with the wine-flushed populace, costumed in a multitude of bizarre modes. Here was a melantine bargeman, here a warrior of Valderon's Green Legion, here another of ancient times wearing one of the old helmets— in a little cleared space, a garlanded courtesan of the Koshik littoral danced the dance of the fourteen silken movements to the music of flutes. In the shadow of a balcony, a girl barbarian of East Almory embraced a man blackened and in leather harness as a deodend of the forest. They were gay, these people of waning earth, feverishly merry, for infinite night was close at hand, when the red sun should finally flicker and go black. This is an amazing description of this festival. The the ending here, right, telling us clearly that these people are, as you say, Brandon, thinking of the world as ending, as eternal night approaching them, that they are living out the last days of Earth. So why, why do anything other than be merry? But Vance also here in this one paragraph throws everything at the wall and just, you know, let something stick, some things not stick, whatever. But he invents like 25 different settings in this world uh, in just this one paragraph, doesn't explain any of them to us. We don't know what any of these things really look like. These things don't mean anything to us, but the sound of the words, right, and the cadence of it, it still sets a mood and invokes something in us, even if we don't actually know what he's talking about, even if we don't actually know anything about Valderan's Green Legion or what Melanie means or where Koshik is and so on. We don't have to for this to evoke a mood for us. Yeah, I mean, this kind of writing really reminds me of a, a book I read a few years ago called The Wolf in the White Van by John Darnielle. Uh, and that book is about somebody who creates a through-the-mail role-playing game. And when I was reading it, I really thought that the role-playing game that this guy invents was more rooted in Conan, the barbarian type of stuff. Um, but the way that Vance just rattles off all of these ideas highlights the, the active imagination or appealing to the active imagination of like an adolescent in some way. And this book, The Wolf in the White Van, is about kind of the pleasures and dangers of getting caught up in, you know, trying to figure out just what these things mean and where they are in the world and living in that holy imaginary world, maybe while neglecting some important things in your own life. And and this is fuel for that type of imaginative world that Vance does. And he does a great job of it. I mean, this is a great way to kickstart your imagination if you're, you know, between the ages of 10 and 14 or something like that, and you're thinking about what the world is like or what kind of world you want to live in, um, it's it's really, really 
great descriptive prose. Yeah, absolutely. There are like 14 different D&D settings that are invented just in this one paragraph that we're not going to encounter again, at least not in this story. And yeah, if you're at that age, if you're looking for D&D ideas, if you're looking to invent your own worlds, but need some writing prompts for them, I mean, here it is. That's what this is. You could go write a whole novel, a whole series of novels about each of these things that Vance has here. Uh, This is something we will be taking up in the discussion at least a little bit. Well, back to the heist then. Turgeon gets to the palace and uses Fandal's mantle of stealth to become invisible. And so he sneaks around the palace grounds and witnesses some awful stuff that's going on. Like people are tossing darts at a young Cobalt Mountain witch. Cobalt Mountain is the proper noun there. So a young witch from Cobalt Mountain who has been tied to like a table and spread eagle and people are throwing darts at her. And you know, that's just one of the things that we get about these festival activities. And Turgeon eventually finds the chamber that the prince is occupying. And he's there with a young child, a girl who is wearing a mask, who's maybe part of these festival activities in some way. It's very uncomfortable. And when Turgeon enters, Candive tells the girl to get out of there because Candive has sent some magic. And at this point, Candive utters a spell that counters Turgeon's stealth spell. Uh, At this point, the two men get into a wizard fight, and Turgeon wins the fight because of the rune on his wrist, Lacadel's rune. This besting of Candive allows Turgeon to get the amulet from the prince, but the prince here has another trick up his sleeve and says that Turgeon is not going to get far Because even though Turgeon's magic is superior, his magic isn't good enough to overcome the physical reality of him standing on a trap floor that's just going to drop out beneath (laughs) him into the dungeons. But Candive is a reasonable man. He says he'll let Turgeon go free if he just returns the amulet and gives uh, Candive Lacodel's rune as well. Turgeon pretends to agree, but only so that he can go back into his pouch where he stored the amulet and pull out Pangeloom's crystal, the one he has to crush, you know, to return to the uh, living room of Pangeloom's manse. Candive susses out that Turgeon is going to trick him here, so he drops the floor out. Turgeon falls into the floor, but he crushes the crystal, and he wakes up safely in Pangeloom's living room. Turgeon immediately hears a struggle going on in the house. It's awful. It sounds really bad. So he goes deeper into the house, kind of peeking out of his eyes and trying to keep his eyes shut to respect Pandaloom's need for not being seen. And when he finds Pandaloom, or at least encounters him in, in, in you know, within shouting distance, Pandaloom is relieved that Turgeon has returned at this point with the amulet. And that's because Pandaloom is really fighting something awful here. He tells Turgeon to keep his eyes shut and take out the amulet. And as he does so, the sounds of the struggle end. Basically, nobody can look at this amulet either. It just dispels all magic and kills magical beings, I suppose, when it's wielded. Pandaloom is grateful because the amulet just defeated some kind of demon, and Turgeon has saved Pandaloom. And to show his gratitude and to keep up his end of the bargain, Pandaloom takes Turgeon under his tutelage to teach him how to make a vat woman and do other stuff too. Well, after Turgeon has fairly mastered making Vatwoman, he asks Pandaloom if he can make a more perfect version, a counterpart to Tiseus, the woman with the flaw in the beginning of the story. 
he wants to make a version of this woman without a flaw. So I guess this story isn't actually about the dangers of making fat women. Uh, at this point, I feel like the rug is pulled out from under me. Uh, it's also not about a uh, dangerous heist or the cost of doing business with a sneaky wizard. I, I don't really know what's going on here. This is going to supply a big conversation in the discussion as well as what actually is this story uh, about. We do still have uh, you know four pages left, so you know we might find out here by the end. Yeah, and you know, Pandaloom says it's totally fine if Turgeon makes uh, that woman that's like to say is but without a flaw. So Turgeon does. He makes Tassane. And Tassane is great. And Turgeon wants to take her back home with him to Earth. And Tassane loves the idea. She also loves Embellion. She loves the beauty of it. And she's a quick learner. And she's really cool. And Turgeon just loves hanging out with her. And she loves hanging out with Turgeon, who teaches her everything. One of the things that Turgeon has taught Tassane is that Tassayus is out there riding a horse and she's violent and scary, and he really doesn't want Tassane to be destroyed by Tassayus. Pandalum has another great monologue here when he takes Sturgeon into his apprenticeship, I guess, really, and is going to teach him how to how to make vat people, uh, and specifically vat women, more effectively, or, you know, to make them effectively at all. And we get some some stronger indication here of how this setting functions. We, we get a, a stronger indication, I guess, of this setting as a far future science fantasy setting that maybe prefigures some elements of the Book of the New Sun when Pandalum Pandalum starts instructing Turgeon here in mathematics. And I, I just want to read his speech about mathematics. Again, I think this is this is great, but it's also going to tell us a lot. So here's what he says. Within this instrument resides the universe, passive in itself and not of sorcery. It elucidates every problem, each phase of existence, all the secrets of time and space. Your spells and runes are built upon its power and codified according to a great underlying mosaic of magic. The design of this mosaic we cannot surmise. Our knowledge is didactic, empirical, arbitrary. Fandal glimpsed the pattern and so was able to formulate many of the spells which bear his name. I have endeavored through the ages to break the clouded glass, but so far my research has failed. He who discovers the pattern will know all of sorcery and be a man powerful beyond comprehension. Uh, this is just awesome here, right? There's a kind of sense that wizard doesn't maybe mean wizard, that it might mean mathematician or, or scientist, at least in some way, that there is some blending of science and magic, or it's magic as science or science as magic. None of that's really spelled out explicitly here, though we wouldn't want it to be either. Uh, but the way that Vance just weaves this in and, and hints at all of these things, I think really builds up the mood of the, the setting here. Uh, this is something I guess, uh, you know, we might see in the Book of the New Sun. Uh, but actually, now that I'm really thinking about it, this actually really feels a lot like the RPG Numenera, which we talked about when we did our RPG episode as well, and which you and I have played together a few times. Yeah, I think what we're seeing here is that what remains of science or whatever is going on here are sort of the effects, but people have been unable to uncover the causes of these things, the study that created what can happen with magic. So we don't really know if the repeating of these incantations, of these, the use of these runes, the effectiveness of the spells is really rooted in using a technology that's invisible to the people using it. It's not something they're interested in. 
beyond the fact that it works consistently. And this is kind of the use of magic and technology, the commingling of those things that Vance, I think, is looking at. Yeah, but this might not be technology is just magic that works. This might actually be magic is technology, just technology that works, right? right? It might right. be inverse here. And I expect that we'll get more of this as we go through these stories. And I'll be real interested in, in that. But we really kind of leave that behind here. This is all we get of this. It's really just kind of a tease because the rest of this story is going to be about uh, the relationship between Tiseus and Tissane. Right. As I was saying, Tissane and Turgeon are planning on leaving and going back to Earth. Uh, but before they leave, and it's not exactly clear what timeline they're leaving on, it's just going to happen someday. Tissane is out wandering and she finds Tissane's house and the two have a kind of quorum. They have a meeting. Tissane is upset at this point because she's always angry she, she's really mad that somebody else is out there that looks like her and that somebody has made her twin somebody has made this person to though is so happy to have found her sister and she immediately goes on to tell her sister that both of them are beautiful and she recognizes that to is really mad but maybe to should just try to love stuff instead of being so oppositional Tiseus is a tough sell here, but eventually she comes around to the idea because she has a sister now who is like her, who she respects and seems to have a better grip on how to be in the world. Tissane tells Tiseus that maybe that is the case. Maybe she does know how to be in the world a little bit better, but she doesn't know everything yet because she's still pretty new. But she does know someone who will continue to help them learn and help her learn. It's Turgeon. And he'll take them back to Earth and take care of them because he's a very good man. Tiseus now is wholly converted from being, you know, somebody who just wants to kill and destroy everything in existence to somebody who doesn't need to act on those impulses. Uh, she's converted by the experience of the love, the unconditional love that her sister has offered her. Tiseus is not going to return to Earth with them. Though she is going to find her own way to Earth so she can experience it. And so Tiseus mounts her black horse and rides off, really, to make her own way. At this point, Turgeon enters the scene and finds Tissane and rushes to her side, ready to kill Tiseus with a fire spell. But Tissane explains that Tiseus isn't going to kill anymore and has dedicated her life to love and beauty and to the enlargement and engrossment of those things. Tissane hopes Tissane will find these things on Earth. Turgeon and Tissane at this point watch Tissane ride off into the distance. And now Tissane has something she'd like to ask of Turgeon. He asks what it is that she wishes. Tissane tells him that she wants a black horse, just like Tissane's once they get back to Earth. Turgeon says indeed, and they laugh on their way back to Pandaloom's house. That's the end of the story. Yeah, you, you say it's the end of the story, but I think it's probably more appropriate to say this is where the story stops. And, uh, yeah, that's fair. That's fair to say. <laughs> and I think we can move straight into our discussion. We are going to talk about craft. We're going to take up the ending. We're going to talk about the plot of this story, uh, do a little bit of story doctoring, I think. But I want to finish on that. And so I actually want to start first with uh, looking at what I think of anyway as the main, the central motif that we get here. And uh, I think it is fair to say that this is a frenetic story. It touches on lots of things, but doesn't really dwell on them. And so I've really just picked this one motif out. And, and this is going to be the, the question of what it means to be good or 
evil. This is what we are left with here at the end. This is kind of where the story finishes. And and maybe first off, Brandon, I, I guess the question that I've got for you to get us started is, how does Vance characterize goodness in, in people and goodness in the, the world in this story? This is something I've really struggled with in this story, because I'm not sure where goodness is to be found. These wizards, the two main wizards, Turgeon and Pandalum, are extremely kind of careless with what they're doing, with their handling of life, yet they're responsible for making Tassane, who is good without a flaw. But Turgeon's responsibility really only extends to the fact that he doesn't want her to get destroyed by Tassaeus. If she does, he'll probably be able to make another one of her Tassane is maybe the only good character in the story, but her sense of being and understanding is really troubling to me because she's made by Turgeon in a vat. He kind of has all control over what she learns and encounters and experiences, and he relishes her naivete in this story, though that naiveness is what is good. So maybe we could say what's characterized as good in this story is innocence is this Edenic life that is wholly corrupted outside of Ambelion. And so there's really only one good in this story, and that is Tassane, who is still innocent and childlike and in this Edenic state. But Turgeon is not really too concerned that she'll be corrupted once she returns to Earth and kind of takes everything that's happening at this festival, which is pretty vile and evil in many cases, in stride. He doesn't try to stop it or intervene. He's fine walking past this woman having darts thrown at her because he's getting an amulet. So it's hard to say what's characterized as good. Again, as I said, beyond uh, this this Blakeian innocence that is uh, really shown to us in the character of Tassine. Yeah, and the innocence is interesting because it's it's almost as if Vance is saying that that goodness is simply the state of not knowing about evil yet, or just not knowing about the world yet, that that's what goodness is. I mean, there's a little more to what Vance is doing here, maybe. I mean, goodness seems maybe to be an aesthetic ability to appreciate beauty, right? This is how what is gone wrong with Tiseus is described, that, that she sees all of the beauty in the world as ugliness, and that's what's created her mix-up about what is good and what is evil. Also, at the end, it's clear that loving other people is a virtue, that this is a goodness, but it's not actually clear what loving means in this context, again, because the innocence gets in the way of what that would mean, and it really just kind of seems to mean uh, enjoying other people, not shunning their company. Uh, it's not necessarily you know doing charity, right? There's nothing about helping widows and orphans here or anything like that, so there don't really seem to be any actions that are characterized as goodness. Or maybe the better way to put it is to say that goodness doesn't seem to be an action that you take here. It's more a state of being. It's this aesthetic appreciation. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point. I didn't connect in this story the idea that the aesthetic appreciation of the world had something to do with goodness. I think that Vance, if he is indeed promoting this idea, is really conflicted or confused about it because I think, you know, the idea of Candive the Golden and what he's up to in this story, his description, his name, all of this indicates aesthetic beauty and appreciation for aesthetic beauty. He might be beautiful himself. He loves the amulet. He has this 
child in the room with him during this festival. It's it's a question of what's going on there. And so I don't know quite what to make of the connection between the aesthetic beauty, the ability to appreciate aesthetics, and the call to action that is, you know, being an, a, an ethical or moral person. I do think that the belief of being loved or the belief of the potential to love others and having that be a beautiful thing is maybe an idea in the story, certainly something that transforms to say us. Um, but I, I don't see the connection as strongly as you do maybe between the appreciation of aesthetic beauty and a call to moral action. Well, yeah, I don't think it's a call to moral action at all. It's simply that we're told that this is what's wrong with her, right? That she's evil and that this is why she's evil. I I, I do not see that there's any kind of call to action. I don't think goodness is described as an action at all here, which is just, it is strange. I think, and I think of any kind of other ethical or moral system, goodness is not only a state of being, or maybe not even a state of being at all, that it's actions. It's about doing something in the world. Though, uh, we should talk about the thing that Tiseus says that she is going to do in the world, which is that she is actually going to make the world a better place. And she's going to do that by killing evil people. Maybe that is the the good action that she thinks that she's going to do. Uh, I've talked already a little bit about my uh, coincidental Vancean intersection this week while I was reading and, and recording a podcast episode about the novel The Star King, which is kill Bill in space. And really what I mean by that is that this idea of making the world better by killing evil people is the basic premise of that novel. Now, I am skeptical that killing evil people equates to doing good in the world. I'm not sure that killing of of any sort can be considered a goodness, can be considered to be doing good. But I wonder, Brandon, what your thoughts on this really simple and quick moral question uh, are, but but maybe even more so on why Vance might believe this here as he's writing this story in the mid and late 1940s. Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know why Vance is preoccupied with these thoughts. The idea that the world is such an awful and hideous place that requires somebody to take action and kill evil people in order to improve the beauty of the world or preserve the beauty of the world. I, I think you would have learned your lesson from World War Two or even World War One or the ongoing Korean War at this point or something along those lines that this idea of killing evil people is not improving things and for existence to be this level of burden for a character like Tussane, and then to also have the correction, the course correction here to be, you just need to love other people or love yourself or something like that. This is all very confused and conflicted for me in terms of a a philosophical exploration of these ideas. So I don't really know what Vance is doing with it. And I'm, I'm so confused because I don't even know if we're supposed to think Turgeon or Pandaloom are good in any way. Is Turgeon good because he created good? Is Pandaloom good because he allows this evil life to live but kind of keeps it trapped in Embellion and and we have kind of a, a snake in the garden situation? I don't know. I don't know what moral orientation this story has taken if it's even trying to be a moral commentary of any kind at all. 
And I do think that some of this is intentional. In fact, I think probably all of it is intentional. I think that this is the brush that Vance is is painting with, or, or maybe better to say that this is the tone in which Vance is painting, that he's looking for shades of gray, uh, maybe a little bit of black in there, but not a whole lot of white. Uh, that seems to be something that he's exploring in most of his stories. He's, he's looking at a kind of darkness and maybe is really wondering what is goodness more than he is trying to promote a a certain type of goodness to tell us what he thinks goodness is. I think he might be looking around the world that has just gone through the most destructive war it has ever seen and uh, has uh, witnessed uh, genocide, several genocides actually in his own lifetime and is wondering what does it mean to be good? How would we even recognize goodness? Is it possible to be good in this world? And I think if you are wondering that if you are asking those questions, setting stories like this in a world that is literally dying, right? There, the sun is dying, and so life on the earth is no longer going to be tenable. Uh, and showing us how people are behaving in a situation like that is probably a pretty great way to explore some of those questions. But it's not something that Vance is being explicit about, right? He's not. I don't think anyway, telling us that that's his central question, or at least even a question that he's really posing. We kind of have had to work to tease this out, I think. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly more interested in engaging with puerile fantasies, really, of being able to make a woman in a vat, and this is the plot of weird science, right? <laughs> um, this, this kind of adolescent fantasy of being a master or a wizard and making a woman or acquiring a woman who's going to look for you to fulfill every need and be wise. And and that is almost more what he's engaging with than any kind of ethical question. And, you know, it's easy for the sort of adolescent fantasy elements of this story, for the escapist elements to really override whether or not there's any ethical question. He's more writing a pure fantasy for somebody to lose themselves in rather than hook somebody with that fantasy and then get them to think about whether or not that's a good fantasy to have at all. Yeah, that certainly seems to be the case here in this first story, but I think we should reserve a little bit of judgment until we've we've done more of them. And I am looking forward to doing more of these. I'm really interested in this world. And I do think that Vance's wordsmithing is uh, is top-notch. I heaped a lot of praise on it during the, the recap, and I, I, I stand by that. I would like to read more of this for sure. But even though I did heap a ton of praise on Vance's wordsmithing, ultimately, I was pretty unsatisfied with this as a story. I, I kind of felt this way about the Star King as well, and really for many of the same reasons. And so, in fact, I'm going to plagiarize my own work from that podcast episode, <laughs> uh, since it's not going to be out until 2023, unless you're on Patreon, in which case you already have access to it. But uh, I'm going to plagiarize my own podcast here, and I'm going to bring in some scholarship on Vance that I've I've also been reading. Jack Rollins, who was a professor of English at California State in Chico, and is someone I think of anyway as being famous, uh, being famous for his book about how to Teach Writing. This is a book called The Writer's Way. It's a very good book. I highly recommend it. But Rollins wrote, it turns out, a small monograph on Vance. And uh, the second chapter of this monograph is called Vance's Worlds. And I'm just going to read from it, and then uh, then we'll start a conversation here about the, the plot. We'll do a little bit of story doctoring here. But here's what Rollins has to say. Vance's worlds are overstuffed, struggling to contain more alien cultures, flora, colors, and smells than the page can hold. Furniture spills forth from the pages, like bric-a-brac in the home of an inveterate antique collector. A world Alfred Bester would spend a novel sculpting, or a more thrifty writer would milk for a series, 
Vance strikes off in one dazzling blow and is soon bounding off to another, never to return. It is central to Vance's art that more is thrown away than kept. And I felt like this really summed up my complaints about this story. It just bounces around from place to place. And the, the plot at the end of the story is not the plot that we started with. So the question I have then, Brandon, I guess, is putting our writing hats on is how would you clean this up to make a genuine short story out of this rather than a kind of meandering collection of scenes and then just not writing anymore after that? That's a really, really good question. This story is indeed frenetic, as you described it, and it does resolve. We do get resolution to the opening plot, which is Turgeon needs to learn how to make that women better. Uh, And by the end of the story, he's created a masterpiece of a VAT woman. So we have that kind of story arc that works. The real problem here is that he goes from the conflict that creates the story. He draws us deeper into that conflict by introducing a second conflict, which is Tassane. Tassane is not a conflict that really needs to be resolved in this story, though she provides some business for Turgeon to get up to, some action for him to deal with, a, a minor obstacle to getting to Pandaloom. That's how she's presented as an obstacle on the quest, not a conflict needing to be resolved. Pandaloom sends Turgeon on a quest. That would be its own story where Turgeon has to get the amulet. He certainly compares getting the amulet to moving the moon closer to Earth or uh, collecting an elixir that has been spilled into the sea. So the fact that the heist really only takes up a you know a paragraph, like 800 words or something like that, <laughs> to me is a real problem to the story. That should be the core conflict of the story, is that this task of making VAT women should be so costly that the quest Turgeon is sent on maybe changes his goals or something like that. And that should be what Pandaloom is up to as a wise person, is to kind of course correct the poor goals of another person. But... Pandaloom is really into making VAT people too. And so he's like, just get get back here as soon as you can because some demon might break loose. That's why I need the amulet. So then he has another obstacle, but none of these are real conflicts to the story. We never, there's never a sense in the story where there's any tension or true conflict to Turgeon learning how to make VAT people better. And so it's almost like the moral of the story is if you need to learn this mad science, this weird science, it's not going to be too hard. You just have to find the right person who's going to teach it to you. And and it's a story that then doesn't have momentum and it's kind of lost. We get a big world with a million things going on, but no real genuine obstacle to the goal of the protagonist. And the protagonist isn't changed by his quest in any way. He's not reflective upon what he needs. It's just... He wants something, he gets what he wants, he makes somebody that's great, that person has an impact on somebody else who is a storyline we don't need resolved, and then the story ends. So this almost isn't even a story, it is really a collection of scenes, and and what you would need to do to make this a short story is to put a real obstacle in the path of the protagonist that changes his approach to the problem or changes him in the overcoming of the obstacle to get what he is initially set out for. 
Yeah, obstacles are a thing that, that definitely all stories need. And this one doesn't really seem to have obstacles. It, it just has NPCs who send you on side quests, which is fun. I mean, that's a lot of fun when you're, when you're actually playing D&D, but it's less fun to read that. I think obstacles are, are going to be a real important part of, of jazzing this up, of making a genuine story out of this. But I think character motivation is also a, a big part of a story that's actually how you get obstacles. The obstacles are there to prevent the character from uh, accomplishing what he or she is attempting to do, the the thing that is motivating them. And here, I think, from the very first line of the story, though I think it's a gorgeously written line of the story, is that we don't actually know why Turgeon wants to build vat people, like what he's what <laughs> yes. he's making them for. And I guess that's where you, I think you corrected me by saying, well, we do actually get a resolution to Turgeon wants to make VAT people because he makes VAT people. And I guess for me, I felt like it wasn't a resolution because I wanted to know why he's making VAT people, what they're for. There was uh, there was an implied plot there to me that then never got resolved or picked up on. But I, I think I made that up. It's not even really in the story because we just don't know anything about the protagonist's actual motive for doing anything. And you can't really have a story without motive. It's a huge problem, and and I think I am just too deeply uncomfortable talking about why I think he's making VAT women. Like the same reason I don't want to talk about what the little girl who's wearing a green mask doing with the prince in a chamber. You know, this story is full of asking the reader to make all of these uncomfortable inferences. And that's what I mean when I say I think Vance is appealing more to... Uh, the kind of adolescent fantasies than he is trying to write a short story. And that that is a little troubling to me um, as a reader. And I, I don't like thinking about why Turgeon is in his castle by himself making vat people at the end of days. What problem is he trying to solve? Why threaten this sort of sexual assault on Tiseus and then go and make somebody who's just like her but better? I think the way that Vance has written this story is asking us to make really dark implications of the motivations of these characters to begin with. And that, to me, is is the most troubling aspect of this story. I agree. And it, it does seem like this setting is, is something of uh, of a hellscape. And it, it does actually have, you know, we keep bringing up the Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe for obvious reasons, but this does actually have some resonance with the fifth head of Cerberus as well, especially the, the opening scene in Turgeon's workshop where he's uh, growing people in a, in a vat. This is something that our protagonist of the first part of the fifth head of Cerberus is doing as well. And some of the descriptive language is actually very similar uh, to each other. And, and the fifth head of Cerberus, of course, taking place on a planet that is a real planet in the universe, but also literally hell. And I think there might be something to this as well. But that is not something I think that we can really fully ascertain until we uh, we read some more stories, which is something I would be really excited to do. Yeah, me too. I definitely want to read more and dig deeper into what's going on here. There is a lot of world here. And I do want to know if Vance, as he goes on kind of writing these stories in this world, uh, is begins to engage with the implications of his writing or if he's just writing to sell to a magazine and the stories are going to sell. Well, I think now that we've kind of covered some of the storytelling issues of the story, some of the dark implications of the story and what was good about this story, what Vance does well, uh, that's going to 
do it for this episode. So once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums or our new subreddit, which is just Clay Temple Media, and let us know what you thought of Turgeon of Mirror and, and let us know what you thought of the ethics of this story. Is this a story that is hellish? Are we not meant to find any good characters here? What are the character motivations? I'd love to dig into more of this stuff in the forums and have our listeners engage with one another about these questions. And if you would like to support the network and have your say in what we cover here on Elder Sign, please do check us out at patreon.com slash Media. Your support makes the show possible at all. And of course, we also appreciate that you make all the hard choices about what we should read. We don't have to do that because you do that for us. We are really grateful for that and for the support. Next time, we'll be back with our first of two episodes on the Robert E. Howard novella, the, the Solomon Kane novella, The Blue Flame of Vengeance. But until then, We greet you and say farewell.